when you confront death at age 22, everything changes. It got me thinking about what I wanted to do before I actually die, because life is unpredictable. Can you relate? I'm Kiki Kelly, and this is my story. My friend Amy Hallberg thought I should share some of my stories with you. She'll be joining me here. Some are hard, some are funny, and some are just unbelievable. But they're all true. So here we are. Season 1, Episode 3. Tales from an Inadvertent Bucket List Champ. So this is a difficult topic, but I want you to remember that it turns out well. And also I have two corrections to make in case anyone from the medical community or any patient is listening to this. One is that I did not have septicemia. I had septic candidemia. So that's candidiasis or candida, a yeast that was in my blood. And that's what almost killed me. Um, It's just as bad as septicemia, but different. The other edit is that my colon did not actually physically burst. It's more metaphorical. It's how it felt at the time. But it was really a fulminating colon. Um, I had been given... Uh, high doses of prednisone solumedrol for a long time and then and taken off of it abruptly without a, a correct taper. And it put me into a state in which I developed the fulminating colon. So I, I that won't matter to the average listener, but still important to clarify that. So <laughs> thank you so much. So this is a hard topic to talk about. Yeah, it's the hardest topic I've ever talked about. The summer you almost died. Yeah. Yeah. The summer I graduated from college and almost died. (laughs) So here we go. College was hard. I loved it. Um, Absolutely loved it. But the last two years of my four-year college experience was marked by high fevers, the inability to eat, and every time I went to the bathroom, it was full of blood. The toilet was full of blood. Yes. Yeah, so you graduate from college, and what were you thinking? I mean, you were going off to get this job. What, were you just suddenly done with all these medical problems? In order to um, survive, I had to not think of the future at all. I was in complete and utter denial. I just ignored any physical symptoms and plowed through. So you were just going to go on to this vacation with your friend out west and then go on out east to teach for America. I graduated it. I had about two weeks before I was supposed to go to training in L.A. for Teach for America. And then I was going to go out east to North Carolina and begin my training for Teach for America there, regional. Mm. Yep. Never occurred to me that, you know, I'd lived like that for two years. Why couldn't I do that forever? Right. I I didn't think about it, which is really ridiculous, but I couldn't. Because if you let yourself think about it... I would have become a victim. I would have been unable to cope. And I had to. I had to cope. You said you had college bills to pay. Your your loans were coming due. Yeah. Um, I mean, I worked three jobs 
during my uh, so yeah I was I was you're on death's door <laughs> and you're working three jobs while also and going, to, going college. to college and graduated with honors yeah I I should have graduated I honestly I I I ended up with a 4.0 for the the last three years, but the first year I was on, my very first semester I was on academic probation because I didn't know how to study. I never had to before, and I didn't take anything seriously because I was like, hey, I'm free. So I'm driving around on a golf cart the night before finals with my RA, drinking beer. I mean, it was the stupidest move I ever did, and I was so mortified and terrified that for the rest of the time I got straight A's. So... This worked for you to just plow through until you let yourself relax. And when you let yourself relax, your body fell apart. Isn't that the irony? Yep. Um, Yeah. Um, I was on the the coast at the Devil's Punch Bowl, the coast of Oregon, with with my best friend and her family. And uh, I... my colon burst. My colon burst. You've talked about how if you'd have gone straight on to Teach for America, that probably wouldn't have happened. You'd have just powered through like normal. And when it finally burst, you probably would have died. Yeah, after being sick for that long, if I had just, if I hadn't have had those two weeks to relax enough to get ill and be given a 2% chance of living, I would have had a 0% chance. Yeah, if I had kept going and went to L.A. and and it would have been a stressful training and I would have dropped dead. Yeah. Wow. So instead, you spent 11 days in Oregon. My my poor best friend and her family, I love them so much. They're they're definitely my adopted family. And, And they took me to the... I mean, obviously, I had to go to the nearest hospital and that hospital was not going to touch me. I mean... I was way beyond what they were that had the capacity for. So all their goal was just to get me stabilized enough to get me back to Minnesota, to the Mayo Clinic. So for 11 days, I stayed as still as I possibly could and had copious amounts of Demerol. And that's what I did for 11 days. And then I had to go back to Minnesota except directly to the Mayo So let's talk about the Mayo Clinic for, I know everybody knows the name, it's a big name, but for people who aren't really familiar, what is the Mayo Clinic? All right, so two brothers, the brothers Mayo, um, started a world-renowned clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, It's so well known that, you know, princes from Saudi Arabia fly there, there are two hospitals um, in which they do surgeries. There are at least 20 floors, if not more, of the actual clinic building where people come from all over the world. So you go to, I remember my grandfather was really sick, and I remember when I was a kid, oh, he went down to Mayo. Like, if, if nobody else knows what to do with you, you go to Mayo. Yeah, it's a teaching um, it's a, a teaching institution, and they are dedicated to studies and um, research. And, and, yeah, the, the hopeless cases go to Mayo. If, if they can't figure it out, you can just forget about it. They will figure it out, honestly. Okay, and you had 
an in there, a really unusual. So here you are on death's door and you have to go to the Mayo Clinic and you have an in there. So talk to that. All right. So my mother is amazing. She had um, had me very young. And so growing up, she was always taking classes here and there as she could. Um, and she kept asking harder and harder questions. And her professors kept gearing her toward the hard sciences because that's where her answers were going to come from. So she ended up applying to medical school at the age of 42. 42. 42 years old. Wow. And she did not get in at the the one that she her her kind of safety school UMD, which is the University of Minnesota Duluth. Yeah. Um, and I don't think she got in at the U of M, even though she'd done research there. Um, yet she gets in at Mayo Medical School, which is like the, <laughs> the hardest one. one to get into. <laughs> yeah, I'm so proud of her. And so she's there in her second year at medical school and uh, it's just incredibly stressful so much going on and and now our daughter is dying but you also knew where you were going to like when you were in you were in the hospital out on the west coast you knew where you were going like it, there was no question you're going to Mayo Medical right and your mom was going to be there yes and I did not want to go back to Minnesota because it meant regressing. I, you know, this was my first adult job that I was going to go to. I'd gotten into Teach for America, which is really hard to get into. It was the third core of 1993. Um, you know, I don't know if they've ever offered this to anyone else, but they gave me a deferral for one year. And thank God they did because I had something to work toward. But at the t- you know, that was terrifying. You know, I wasn't going to make it to training. I wasn't going to make it to my first job. Instead, I end up back in Minnesota. (laughs) And the first thing that happened when you got back pretty soon thereafter was this surgery. So, so I get back and it's at night and they take me off a Demerol right away. So just cold turkey. And, you know, any judginess I had toward anyone who had ever taken drugs just disappeared because it was hard. I was detoxing like crazy. I was freezing cold. They were taking me um, through x-rays. And, you know, the Mayo Clinic doesn't really trust anyone else. They have to have their own (laughs) data. Right. And it was just, I was in in a lot of pain. And... um, it happened to be the time when um, the residents switch. It was around uh, the 4th of July. So so I had to wait until the 7th to have my surgery. And my parents were so scared. My, my dad brought me a dozen red roses and he was singing lullabies and he doesn't even sing. And he was <laughs> so scared and everyone was yeah. so scared. And but there was really no choice. I had to have the colon removed, and so like let's let's get really clear on that. Your whole colon, and you're 22 years old. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I, I I didn't allow myself to think about what that actually entailed because it would have been too scary. Yeah. So. Yeah. So anyway, um. The 4th of July was an interesting holiday, and it's still, honestly, 
is my least favorite holiday um, because on that day I was waiting for my surgery and they wheeled us all up to the observation deck Mm. at St. Mary's Hospital and it was me and little kids who had, you know, leukemia and there was a little girl crying because she didn't want to have her IVs changed and I... I said, you know, I just had my IVs changed. It feels so much better. You can do it. You know, you you've got this. And you know, it was just the worst because you're you're seeing the fireworks, and yet there's no joy there. I mean, there's these scared, scared patients, and we're all being wheeled there, and we're all in our gowns, and ugh, it was just terrible. And so the day came, and I finally had the surgery. Yeah. July 7th, 1993. So do you want to talk about what they did in that surgery? Yeah. So my mother um, has nerves of steel. Um, (laughs) You know, so as as she had to kind of split herself in two, there's the mother of this, this dying girl, and then there's also the medical student. So she was in the observation gallery, you know, all scrubbed up. And um, so watching you from above. Yeah, and I'm really glad that she did because otherwise I wouldn't have known what had happened. So, I mean, I guess I could piece it together based on my scars. But, but you have an you have an intelligent witness who saw the whole thing and knew what was going on. Yes, and in those days, um, this was still a f- fairly new surgery. They, it, now I guess they can do more laparoscopic, but at the time they gutted me like a deer. So above my belly button all the way down and um there were two clips i mean yeah there's nothing it's brutal that so that i'm just completely gutted and my guts are completely open and they had a giant silver you know bowl stainless steel bowl of um, saline and they literally took my colon and stuck it in the bowl of saline and cut it out and what they didn't expect was that every bit of my colon was a mess just an ulcerated bleeding mess it was completely destroyed it had to come out yeah I have no idea what they did to it. I know they sent it to pathology, but what do they do with your organs after that? I have no idea. <laughs> There's pieces of you out there. <laughs> I, you know, I guess everyone has to sacrifice something, right? And so... So what did they say that you had? They think you have ulcerative colitis. Okay, so because the colon was ulcerated, but my small intestine, the ileum, was not... It just was an obvious diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. Therefore, if you have a complete colectomy, you get your colon removed, you no longer have ulcerative colitis. However, throughout the years, I've had extra intestinal symptoms. Mm-hmm. So when I was a teacher, for example, I would have like so many mouth sores and, and, and ulcers in my throat that I could barely speak. And I learned to eat very, very spicy foods to cauterize my mouth and throat so that you I could just talk. figured that out for yourself. Well, I had to. You, right. You, <laughs> so, so that's when you first started eating Indian food was yeah. to, to basically burn your mouth. Yes. Necessity is the mother of invention. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you might have Crohn's disease. Right. I'm still not diagnosed. Um, 
and that's why it's scary every time I have to go to the gastroenterologist. But um, but I am a miracle patient, and um, I have grown a small colon back. But but back then. I had to have an ileostomy bag, and that is still hanging above me because if if I ever, my pouch, I have a J pouch, it's called a J pouch, if that ever stops working, I would have to have the ileostomy bag again. It was horrendous being 22, 23 years old and having your small intestines sticking out of a hole, it's called a stoma, and you can see the contents of what you've eaten come out into this bag. Oof. Yeah, it, it you know, and there's plenty of people who who live live that way all the yes, time. Yes, yes, and it just mm-hmm. and there was no guarantee that I wouldn't live that way all the time. So that's And you said the bag is basically glued to your skin? Yeah, yep, there's an adhesive and um it's a circular, so I had a big, you know, constant circular red mark. And yes, I'd have to change the bag. <laughs> yeah. But before I really learned how to do it properly, I had some accidents. So, for example, so I'm on the surgery floor. The nurses um, just think I'm a wuss um, because I keep fainting and not wanting to walk with my IV pole. And um, I'm resistant to learning how to put, the, you know, I'm just resistant to everything. And, and, and so this one day I'm, the, the contents burst, right. And I'm heading to the bathroom to clean myself up and I'm already near tears because, you know, this is just not who you, know, you well, think you you're going to be. It's not even the, the end product, right. It's sort of the halfway digested, like on its way to being shit. Yeah. It's not even shit yet. Right. And and you you literally know like I can never eat Cheerios again because I know exactly what it looks like. Before <laughs> I, you know, it, it just wow. it changes things. And at that moment I'm on my way to the bathroom covered in my own, you know, crap and in comes my doctor and my main surgeon, world renowned with his entire team of residents and a few medical students. I mean, huge team. They just walk in and I'm mortified. And all he does is say, oh, are you blue? (laughs) And, you know, nowadays I'd be like, F you, buddy, get the F out of here. Right. Right. But the time I just cried. Well, these are people your own age, these medical students. Yeah. And it's so embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, it's just... Yeah. I'm just a specimen. I'm literally just a specimen for study at this point. And as you said, the nurses, you were in a lot of discomfort. The surgery's been done. You should be getting better. You're not. And the nurses were dismissive. So what what, what are some of the symptoms that you were experiencing? So I would... Um, I, my mother always believed me, but she couldn't... There had to be proof. And, and you know, my body just doesn't do what... You can't, you know, it does what it wants. Right. <laughs> so, so I would spike a really, really high fever, and she'd call the nurses to, you know, take my temperature. And by then, it would like go way down, right? And, right. And I couldn't stand the smell of perfume. It made me 
just super nauseous. I couldn't stand light. My eyes hurt so much. I was freezing cold all the time. So I had my mother crank up the heat in the room. And of course the nurses really, you know, they were thinking of their own comfort Mm -hmm. and they just thought I was being a major diva and pain in the ass. So, and your head was hurting the whole time. Yes. I had this huge, awful, awful pain above my left eye. Do you say you couldn't even see straight? Ugh, I, yeah, I just, I had to shut, I basically just laid there and shut my eyes. It was miserable. And every time I had to walk, I would faint. And, you know, I couldn't eat. I, I couldn't do anything. So the nurses are coming in and... My mother is like Martin Luther with her <laughs> with his her 95 theses, right? She she writes out this list of, you know, this is my daughter. <laughs> you will not wear perfume in this room. You will not change the temperature. You know, she is the patient. This is what she needs. And um she laid down the law. And thank God she did because and oh gosh, I remember I remember being so cold and shaking almost off the bed and she was she cuddled me. She was laying in the bed with me with all these blankets and just mm. Can you imagine? Yeah. 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 So when your mom finally got someone's attention, what happened? They finally um, took my temperature, and it was really, really high, and um, they tested my blood, and I had septicemia, which is a blood fungus, uh, and incredibly serious. It had already gone through... Uh, so suddenly, everything changes, right? I'm, I'm down in ophthalmology, getting my eyes tested. I had hemorrhaged in my eyes. Um, it's made it through my brain. That's why I had the huge pain, headache, you know, above my left eye. Um, it's in my lungs. I have to, you know, use a breathing tube and, and, and to try to keep my lungs clear. And it's just everywhere. And, um, one of the residents who did my surgery, um, became a regular visitor. He came one Sunday, you know, on his time off and brought me just blankets and, um, he ended up doing my IVs because, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. No, it's great. Keep going. Well, they they had to give me a really strong medicine called amphotericin B, and the nurses called it amphoterrible. It's a poison. It kills everything. So not only does it kill the fungus, but it kills all of the good bacteria as well. So it leaves you in a state you know, where you have to be quarantined. So I'm quarantined on the surgical floor. This is, this is the floor. This <laughs> Do is the people floor. live on the surgical floor? No, no, this just doesn't happen. So <laughs> I'm like the one, I'm one in a million in so many ways. So um, for good and bad, people come in and get their surgeries. They get transferred to another floor or they go home. Right. I stay in this, in this one room. And only one night nurse, one day nurse, and my mother and the doctors are allowed in. And that's it. Wow. So, And you have teams of doctors. Five teams of doctors. Um, not only the gastroenterology, um, gastroenterology surgeons, mm-hmm. right? 
clearly, obviously, but dermatology, because I kept getting these crazy weird rashes, head to toe, no one could explain it. Um, infectious diseases was assigned to me. They just, like, they're just like, this is such a weird patient. Um, internal medicine and ophthalmology. Wow. Yeah. And so while you're on quarantine, are they still coming to see you? Or are they now out the door? No, the doctors are allowed in because they're, they're scrubbed up. and So that doesn't sound like a very good place to get sleep. Yeah. You, you don't really get rest in a hospital because they're constantly taking your vitals. But I didn't want to sleep anyway because when I did, um, they had to give me a Toradol shot, first of all. And so I had all these bruises on my hip. And then I would have these horrible nightmares. From the Toradol? Um, I don't know. I don't know what they're they're from, but but here's an example. So I'm supposed to babysit an arena full of children. Uh huh. And <laughs> thankfully, my dad is supposed to pick me up. But instead of my dad, John Belushi shows up in a Tron car filled with garbage, and starts taking me in a spiral down to the center of hell. John Belushi is driving you to the center of hell in a Tron car. Correct. And what does the center of hell look like? Bizarrely, it's a clean, well-lighted place, a la Hemingway, Uh which is a cafe, and in it, the waitresses have beautiful pink, starched, um, crisp dresses with the little, you know, the little name tag that says Flo, and... Uh, they're offering me milk, and I know that I cannot take a sip of milk because then I will be stuck there forever and I will be owned. And so I'm, but I'm hungry. So I'm scrounging my pockets for, for pennies for the gumball machine. Okay, can I just say, so, <laughs> so you're in the underworld, but don't drink the milk or you'll have to stay there forever, and you're looking for pennies to pay the ferryman? I know it's very <laughs> it's very mythical, isn't it? It's very Persephone like, except a modern take on it. Wow. Yeah, and I woke up screaming, and the nurses wow. came. I yeah, so I didn't want to go to sleep. Wow. So, was there anything that gave you comfort at this time? Well, um, just honestly, comfort was very. I mean. <laughs> I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't read. I couldn't, I, you know, I couldn't stand anything. But one day I'm so mad at the nurses who think I'm a wuss because I know I'm not. So I'm, (laughs) I'm dragging my stupid IV pole and I make it to the end of the hall just to show them that I can do it. And out of a room pops this woman, just this kind woman and she says oh I'm so sorry I don't do this I really I don't do this but it's on my heart to tell you that you're going to be okay (sighs) I needed that I I can't tell you what those words meant to me yeah (laughs) wow yeah because things weren't good at that point oh no 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 I uh, there was, yeah, the 2% chance of living. Um, it felt like 98% chance of dying. 
I mean, at that time, um, I, for whatever reason, had some red Gatorade and threw it up and you know, that was, <laughs> I was forbidden to have any more red anything because everyone freaked out. And my mom, you know, I had regressed so much, you know, I'm basically just, you know, you regress. I'm like a little kid and I'm terrified. Yeah. I want my mommy. Yeah. And she's trying to feed me chocolate pudding and I couldn't eat it. I couldn't, I couldn't eat anything. All I'd had was intra- intravenous uh, nutrition. Mm. I couldn't, and I was supposed to be able to start eating regular foods, and I just I couldn't. And um, I could see in her eyes that she didn't think I had a very good chance either. Mm. But then I, um, I asked for a chaplain. Um, yeah. I don't know why. It's not my normal. You're not particularly religious. Um, I uh, yeah, I, I. I I don't know why I did it. I just did. And bizarrely, also, I, I, I was a fairly compliant girl at the time. I wouldn't say woman. Um, I didn't like the first chaplain. There was something that didn't, it wasn't, didn't pass the smell test. So I asked for another chaplain. <laughs> and Send it away. Yes. <laughs> bring me another chaplain. <laughs> so, so another chaplain comes in and this one is, 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 is the right one. And all I remember saying to the chaplain is, God only gives you exactly what you can handle, and I cannot handle one more iota. I have reached my limit. It is, this is it. I can't handle anything more. And then uh, apparently, well, I only know because he talked to my mother, and my mother told me that the chaplain said, your daughter is very spiritual, and um, she does think she has something to live for. And I think hearing that from my mother solidified, because I don't remember talking to the chaplain barely, I mean, I barely remember that, but something solidified. I have something to live for. I have been tested, and I have passed the test. Something changed. Yeah. The next day, literally the next day, for the first time ever, I'm sick of my hospital gown. All I have in the world, because all my stuff had been sent to North Carolina and I was supposed to, you know, all I have in the world is a pair of old Levi's, one V-neck Hanes t-shirt and a pair of Doc Martens. And I put that, I put the clothes on, I grabbed my IV pool and I started walking those halls and I didn't stop. I, I just kept walking. They ended up going to even, like, the cardiology center. <laughs> I was all over in the Domatia building. Um, they, everyone got to know me. I was everywhere. They couldn't keep me from walking. And your personality came back. Well, yes. I wanted to show those damn nurses. <laughs> like, And then, of course, the nurses became my friend. You know, I, I was just like... You don't understand. I'm not a wuss. I've put up, you know, like I made it through college. Okay, so, but I start getting better very suddenly. And I start ordering books from the library at the Mayo. You can read? St. Mary's. I finally can can read. My brain is clear. My eyes are working. Um, and the first book I read is Sophocles. <laughs> <laughs> Oedipus Rex. And um, 
just, you know, all... Oedipus Rex, seriously? Yes. I don't Your know. Your eyes are returned. Right. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Tiresias. <laughs> I, I know I had this urge to read, like, the great literature. I read Tolstoy and all of the Jane Austen. It just I just always had a, a stack of books by my bed, and the doctors started... Um, they were really surprised because, you know, until then, they had no idea who I was. I couldn't even read a Vogue magazine until then, and all of a sudden I'm reading, like, the great books. Right. And then the nurses started taking advantage. They're like, hey, can you look at my paper? And I was like, yes! <laughs> I finally have a reason for being! And I started editing, and then I started putting up pictures of my friends in the room and creating terrible statues of the stupid peanut butter banana sandwiches they sent to fatten me up and I couldn't stand it and I stuck all the plastic forks and knives in there and then the doctors came in I'd have a snarky title for my statue (laughs) (laughs) and they were like oh my god this is like a dorm room we need to get you that F out of here. Well, you're even going to classes at this point. So, yes. My, <laughs> my mother, um, you know, because, of course, her, her, her Mayo Medical School classmates are very invested as well. In, in, uh, that class probably aced. Every single person in that class aced gastroenterology because they, I was their, I was, you know, like their, their mascot. And um, it started out as me being, you know, the... Uh, medical schools have or the classes they'll they'll have a patient you know and and they prefer to have like the real patient but otherwise they'll have actors you know presenting symptoms right well so I was the patient but then they they started allowing me to actually go to classes with my mom (laughs) because I was bored so I'm going to medical school classes and um you know, reading these great books and editing nurses' papers. And finally, the doctor's like, listen, I'll give you a four-hour pass to get out of this place. And I was like, thank God. (laughs) So my Aunt Jennifer, my wonderful, dear, sweet Aunt Jennifer, comes and takes me to the mall. And, you know, when you're a prisoner in a quarantined room on the surgical floor of St. Mary's Hospital... The mall is magic. (laughs) And that orange Julius tasted so good. It was unbelievable. And I tried on some clothes, and it was like the lowest size I've ever been in. And I looked like a bobblehead because my head's too big for my body. But I was in life. I mean, I must have looked terrible. But my aunt just acted like, you know, just any other day. She takes me back, and of course I'm tired for the first time in a really good way without having nightmares or having to get shots to go to sleep. So how did you leave for good? So, uh, yeah, once they started giving me some freedom to go outside of the hospital, uh, I got in my head that I wanted to go stay with my grandparents. It, it was just always such a happy place, and it was the town I was born in, and my both sides of my family go back over a hundred years of, you know, having all been born at the same hospital in the same town. Yeah. It's called Moose Lake, the village of Moose Lake, and it's just a charming little town that has lakes and cabins. And um, my grandmother 
doesn't particularly know what to do with sick people. So I, I can't even imagine what my mother had to go through to get me there. But she did it. She convinced my grandma that I was going to go live there. <laughs> <laughs> she somehow got uh, a volunteer pilot to take me from the rooftop of Mayo to Moose Lake, which doesn't have an airstrip. So my grandparents met me out in a field. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know. Plus, plus I still had to do the amphotericin B treatments um, for, you know, eight hours a day. And so the nursing staff at Mercy Hospital had to learn this new protocol because it's not a normal thing, right? Somehow all of this happened because of my mom, who's also a second year medical school student. I mean, but she makes this happen. And I fly to Moose Lake and I'm at my grandma's house and I have to give myself, I have a, a, a shunt and I have to give myself heparin shots and um, I have to get rid of hazardous waste. <laughs> <laughs> Needles. Yes. And, you know, I've still got the, the ileostomy bag. And so, but. But it was so healing. I knew it. I just knew in my heart that, that that was the place I needed to be. You needed to go home. I needed to go home. This is Amy Hallberg in partnership with Kiki Kelly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tales from a Bucket List Champ. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast and please share it with friends. We'll be back next time with episode number four, The Year of Living Dangerously. We hope you'll join us. Until then, what's one item on your bucket list?